Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize. I'm Shane Gerritsen. And I'm Cal Vandergrift. And this is the pharmacy podcast that brings you current events, pharmaceutical history, examinations of drugs and pop culture, and much more. Today, we're going to be giving a brief update on the Zantac recall, a discussion of a wearable insulin delivery device, and a historical review of the infamous Tylenol murders of 1982. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. Be sure to listen throughout the podcast for information on a very special giveaway related to one of our segments. All right. So this is actually our our second quarantine episode, and we're trying out something new this time. We are actually recording a remote podcast episode. Cal and I are in two different locations. We are communicating via the uh, archaic, obsolete program called Skype, which I haven't even heard its name in a decade, probably. I think we're so over the use of Zoom for all of our online courses now that we just needed to try something different and new. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's working out well for us so far. Let's um hopefully there's not going to be any any hiccups, but if there are, we apologize. There's not much we can do about it right now. We're under yeah, uh, quarantine. I'm not even going to bother to apologize. Just is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Okay. So so first, we would just want to give a really brief update on Zantac, the generic of which is ranitidine. We talked about this a long time ago, I think in, in January. Might have been our first episode, was it? I think it was our first episode. Yeah, yeah. all the everything's running together. I don't, I don't, I don't know which, which way is up anymore. So ranitidine, certain lots and manufacturers were recalled in October or November, but now as of April first, FDA released a statement: all ranitidine products, generic brand, over the counter liquid reconstitutable everything recalled 100% total recall and this is what we mentioned last time in the episode we discussed we discussed the possibility of it because there was that one independent company out in California that was pushing for it based on the instability of the drug molecule mm-hmm. and i think that that's really interesting this is a pretty big step for the fda to just i don't i don't i can't think of another instance where the fda has made such a blanket recall on something like this well, I guess NDMA was a uh, pretty pretty serious and pretty cancerous yeah they did discover that it was that it's an inherent component of the molecule itself. So that's hopefully been taken care of now, as we can see by this, this blanket recall that they've initiated. Pretty, pretty monumental. If you want to hear about that, just go down and scroll down in one of uh, whatever you're using to listen to this podcast. Scroll down, listen to it. Yeah. We talk a, more about the Zantac recall. It was a good episode. We'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the mechanism of the uh, production of NDMA. It's a cool little theory. A picture is still on our website, on our Facebook page and Instagram from when we talked about that. So we're going to talk about the more current events now. We've got the this new device came out a couple of years ago, a wearable insulin device called Vigo. It's really cool. It looks like a little battery pack. It's got a, an adhesive bandage around it and you, you stick it on the same place where you'd use another subcutaneous injection, either the abdomen or the back of the arm, and the device administers a basal flow of insulin, and you can press an actual button on the device to receive a bolus dose during meals or when you eat a snack throughout the day. Um, Like I said, it came out actually a couple of years ago, but it's making headlines again because initially the device was only approved for rapid-acting insulin, either insulin Lispro or insulin Aspart, but a study performed by the Dallas Diabetes Research Center in which 113 patients were given either rapid-acting insulin or regular short-acting insulin, the regular human insulin and the resulting change in their A1C for both groups were really quite comparable. The regular human insulin users saw a decrease of 0.6% in their A1C 
from baseline of 8.41, and the rapid-acting insulin users saw a decrease of 0.38% from baseline of 8.33. Now, this is a lot of numbers, but it basically just means that they produced really similar results in their A1C-reducing capabilities. And as far as I know, and as far as these researchers know, they actually stated this in their study, and this is the only study directly comparing rapid-acting and short-acting insulin via continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion using this type of wearable insulin delivery device. So a little bit about the device itself. Like I said, it's, it's small. It looks like a, like a battery pack. It's maybe about the size of two or three AA batteries. It comes in three different speeds, if you will, differing in their basal rate, but not the bolus dose. The basal rate are 20 units a day, 30 units a day or 40 units a day. The bolus dose is two units at a time up to 36 additional units a day. And you can press that special bolus dose up to 18 times in a 24 hour period. And then you've got to change it. So you get seven devices per week, one device per 24 hour period. And it's supposed to be easy to use considering it would have to be simple enough for a, a pretty large and varying population of the general public to use considering that 30 million Americans have type 2 diabetes, it goes without saying that the medical literacy and the ability to use medical devices without training would vary quite drastically. That being said, the device itself, or devices rather, there's a few pieces involved, they looked kind of complicated to me. Maybe a diabetic patient who's well-versed in pumps and testing devices like meters and strips and lancets wouldn't be intimidated by the thing, but it does, it does seem a little complicated. So the device itself is, is a once daily thing. You wear it for 24 hours and you throw it away, probably in a sharps container or appropriate medical waste receptacle. The website wasn't clear, but also every day you have to fill it yourself, which patients mm. who draw up insulin with a syringe multiple times a day would probably be relieved by something like this to make their lives easier. Because compared to like a syringe and then the, the vial, it does seem easier than that. But if you're like a new diabetic patient, this might be kind of kind of intimidating. Yeah. So the device itself, like I said, looks like a little battery pack. And then it comes with a, the filling device, which looks like it's kind of the only way that I can think of to describe it is like a big vape pen. Cause <laughs> like what, what kind of vape pen are we talking like the big, like long one? Yeah. It's like, like a big, pretty long one. And it's, it's a uh, square on one end where you put in the, the, um, the Vigo device. And then on the other end, it's rounded and tapered, and it looks kind of like a mouthpiece. That's where the, the vape imagery comes in. And that's where the insulin vial actually goes in. So they go in huh. each on one end, and then you depress a plunger, which I think first injects air into the vial, which is what you're supposed to do. So you have, um, like, you don't create negative pressure in the vial. And then it draws, you draw out the, the um, actual insulin really slowly, and you got to hold it upright, obviously. And it, I guess it, it seems a lot easier than, like I said, drawing up with a needle multiple times a day just to do this one thing once a day, which is pretty cool. But seems a lot more patient friendly. I, I agree. So, yeah, so they've got these the one product, the Vigo, that's out now. And I think that they've got bonus products, which are not currently available. Um, they're coming out. I think they're, they're planned and they may be coming out in the near future. In my notes, I likened them to DLC, which I realize now is really not funny. Um, the Vigo Link, a bright green turtle shell that goes over the device, negating the comfortable privacy provided by the skin-colored bandage camouflage. The device connects to apps on your smartphone and Wi-Fi or Bluetooth-enabled testing device to track and report basal and bolus usage. It can also be used to manually adjust treatment. The device cannot currently automatically adjust basal rate, 
but that may be a future functionality. Who knows? They also are considering pre-filled insulin devices. Like they're already going to already going to come filled for the day, so you don't have to do that filling manually thing. But I'd imagine that that would increase the price pretty dramatically. And now that we're talking about price, the price for these devices, they're usually covered under insurance, but just the cash price for a one month supply is about, can you guess? I'm not even going to take a guess, but I'm imagining it's pretty significant. It's a, it is a little bit expensive. It's for just the device, not even for the insulin at all. It's about $380. That's mm. the cash out of pocket cost for a one month supply of these things. It's not as bad as I was actually assuming. I is mean, it really? Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, I was I was expecting it since it's so such a new product. I was expecting a little bit more of a pricier range. And on top of it, if it's covered by insurance, that, that'll really help patients that need it. Yeah, yeah, now, it is. I do have a question as well um, in reference to its actual usage. So like pens and pumps have been around for a while now. Comparing that to the usual insulin injections that we see uh in the modern in the modern medical world how does it compare to the that same functionality that we see from the pumps and from what i understand the functionality of the pumps they're kind of complicated they get more and more advanced every year which Mm -hmm. is great because now they the the pumps themselves can be automated and they can communicate with um automated testing supplies which can adjust the basal rate these guys can't adjust the basal rate but the pumps can the pumps are kind of complicated. They have a lot of similarities to the Vigo. They get changed, uh, I think, every couple of days you refill them and you change out the tubing. But the device itself is supposed to last like a couple of years. And those things can be really expensive. Upfront cost for an insulin pump, you're looking at anywhere up to $8,000, especially if you're looking at like a higher end. Now, insurance does cover a portion of that as well. It really depends on your plan how much it's going to cover upfront, whether or not you've got a deductible that needs to be met, or if you don't even have that, like if you're paying like a certain percentage or whatnot, they usability is also definitely a problem for the pumps. I think that they are, like I said, a little bit more, more complicated. Um, needles as well can be pretty complicated too. Just, just the manual dexterity that's required to draw up and inject several times a day. Mm-hmm. Now, in reference to like, um, I, I know you don't know a lot about you're you're not you're not. What's the word? Uh, you don't know the economics behind it necessarily, but um, compared probably not. But compared to based on your research, compared to like the pumps and the pens, would you say that the price, even though maybe slightly higher than some of the other alternatives that we see, uh, is that is that been proven to be a little bit? It's it might be worth the the. I think Vigo is definitely cheaper than the pumps because for the for the Vigo yeah for the Vigo you're looking at forty five hundred a year. It's not bad. Mm -hmm. No, which isn't Um, bad. Now, if you need like, well, then again, pumps last usually like a couple of years. It really it really depends. The what you need to also consider is that what you're paying for is almost freedom. Because it's the freedom from having to inject yourself several times a day. Needles are really cheap. They're like 20 cents. They're like 20 cents a needle. Yeah, right. I'm sure you could probably buy them in bulk and get them even cheaper. But uh, 
and the insulin pens, those things can range uh, a little bit more on the expensive side as well, other than just like the cheapest, which would be just plain old insulin and a needle. That's definitely you're going to be your cheapest. But what, what you're paying for is, is the freedom to have live an almost a normal lifestyle without having to, to stop and inject yourself with insulin six times a day. Just put on this this patch and have um, regular mobility. They're really small. They are pretty discreet. They're like maybe like a quarter of an inch high and they're pretty mm. small. Would you consider the ease of use of of these new Vigos to be about the same as some of like a, like a solo star pen or something like that? That's a good question. The solo star pen. I'd say this is easier than the solo star pen. Mm-hmm. I know you have to prime those and everything else. That yeah. You have to do before injecting. Yeah. I don't know how to use the solo star pens. I know that you have to dial those up to whatever dose you're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these don't require any kind of dialing. Okay. But I'd say that these are easier just because you don't have to do the dialing and the extra injecting. The only additional um, maintenance that you really have to do from day to day is just to give yourself that extra bolus dose. And that's just two buttons that you have to press. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a cool, that's a cool new invention. And did you say you just said it's been FDA approved now? It's, it's been out, it's been on the market actually for just a few years now, but they've just now started looking at the ability to use regular and short acting insulin instead of just the rapid acting insulin, just for for like cost efficacy. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if you necessarily call it a breakthrough, but it is, it, it gives patients another option and that's always good. Yeah. A cheaper option too. Mm Mm-hmm. And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Let's Pharmanize. And now we're going to do our best take at essentially, uh, I wouldn't say copying cereal, but we were talking about this before the podcast. It It's not unlike something that would show up on like a cereal podcast or, or another cr- true crime podcast. And uh, we're going to be talking today about the 1982 Tylenol murders that occurred in Chicago, Illinois, as well as in a couple other states. Whether or not those other ones were copycats or not, we'll get into a little bit more as we go. Um, But cue the spooky music, get your popcorn out, get everything ready, because I'm going to tell you a story about the 1982 Tylenol murders. I know. I'm so ready. Seven people died in the Chicago area in 1982 via a poisoning, which was later to be found to be cyanide. And it was actually by one of the primary investigators um, determined that it might be cyanide because he was asked to smell one of the pills or one of the bottles. And it smelled kind of like almonds. And cyanide is known to smell faintly like a sweet almond or like almond milk. And that was one of the first hunches that they had to determine that the poisonings were caused by cyanide, which is kind of cool. So seven people died. Uh, some as young as age 12. Mary Kellerman was age 12. She was actually the first person to die um, from these poisonings. Mary Reiner, oh my gosh. age 27. Mary McFarland, age 31. Paula Prince, age 35. And then here's here's the really twisted part. Adam Janis, age 27. Stanley Janis, age 25. 
and Teresa Janice, age 19. Three people from the same family died from the Tylenol murders. Are they all siblings? No. Okay. So Adam and Stanley are brothers. Teresa is the wife of Stanley. Gotcha. So here's what happened. Um, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit about Adam uh, and, and their, the Janice's tragedy. It's so awful. So Adam Janice um, had some sort of a headache or had a fever or something like that. And he went over and reached into his medicine cabinet for a bottle of Tylenol Extra Strength. And he pulls it out, takes a Tylenol, and after about a few minutes, he's found collapsed on the floor, seizing. After returning home from the hospital, after Adam's death, the poisoning, Stanley and his wife, Teresa, both Uh took a Tylenol from that exact same bottle and both consequently died. It's horrible. I mean, it's like, that's the saddest thing I've heard in a long time. Jeez. But, um, so the investigation went on. Um, all of this happened in the same day. And by the way, all three of them all died in the same day. That's, I mean, that's, they came home from the hospital and died. That's horrendous. Yeah, it's awful. So an investigation started. Um, a lot of media, there was a big media circus around this. Um, Kind of similar to what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19. And there's a bunch of of craziness surrounding that in the media. And after the investigation was started, it was determined that a killer would have needed to purchase the bottles, pack the pills, each individually with cyanide, and then place them back on the shelves. Now, you might not need to have pharmacy experience to do that, but you and I have both experienced something similar. It's called pill packing. It's very simple. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you undo yeah. undo the capsule, pour out the drug. And uh, according to this theory, the killer would have needed to pack them hand by hand, pill by pill um, with cyanide. So these are these are capsules. These are like the old like shell, yes. like you can just pull them apart with your hands and sprinkle the powder out. Capsules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this okay. is 1982, which I guess capsules were a little bit more common back in the day than they are now. Um, yeah. It was actually Johnson and Johnson is the one that makes Tylenol. And they actually were part of a program that said, if you have a bottle of Tylenol in the United States, that you could actually send it back. And then for like a long time after that, Tylenol was only made in tablet form. And I think from here on out, it's just basically made in tablet form. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's only available in tablets. Yeah, I can't think of ever seeing a Tylenol capsule. But maybe it was due to the extra strength. It was extra strength capsule uh, capsules that were all um, ingested, which would obviously make sense, seeing how you needed to get cyanide in there. He or she. I think. I think that most over the counter medication now is exclusively tablet. I don't think there's there's caplets, but those are uh, those don't count because those are sealed. You can't yeah. open those easily. But like the capsules, mm-hmm. like we still have them in the pharmacy behind the shelf where those you can just pull apart and sprinkle the contents out and theoretically replace them. But those aren't, as far as I know, those are not available over the counter anymore. I guess they changed all formulations after this stuff went, you know, this stuff happened. Yeah, this actually, this case was a big reason um, why a lot of our new regulations were founded for safety of, of medications. And, and we'll talk about that at the end of the, of the end of the scoop that we're diving into here. Scoop. The scoop. 
All right, I'm going to give you the scoop real quick, too. It was determined that the bottles were each bought from different stores. Nuts. So each each cyanide bottle, different stores. So after after this whole frenzy started, um, Johnson and Johnson set up like uh, capsule testing um, labs that you could send your you could send the bottles to like all of the recall Tylenol went to these labs to test for cyanide. Mm -hmm. Over 10 million pills wound up being tested by these laboratories. 50 pills only in the Chicago area contain cyanide from eight different bottles. Oh, and this right here, this right here gave me chills when I heard and read this. Five of the bottles were purchased by the victims. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Two bottles were found and sent back in the recall. One bottle was still sitting on a pharmacy shelf. Oh, geez. When they were found. Isn't that scary? Oh, man. Anyone could have bought that Tylenol bottle. We might have had eight or more vi- victims, but luckily it was found. That is scary. Yeah. I mean, you work in a pharmacy. Just imagine I that can't. being something that you have to think about. I can't. I mean, that's crazy. I can't imagine people just living in the fear that they have now. If something something malicious was going on like this, I don't know. Mm hmm. So Johnson and Johnson, like I said, the manufacturer of Tylenol, um, big farm, they make a bunch of stuff. Yeah. They wound up recalling 31 million bottles of Tylenol <laughs> and it resulted in a 100 million dollar loss. Um, oh, my gosh. According to estimates, plummeting their stocks and sales. Like I said, nationwide panic occurred. I mean, Chicago PD at one point was going through the streets using loudspeakers to announce the news about the Tylenol to throw away your Tylenol bottles or bring them back to the pharmacy for recall. That's why I mean, this is like, this is pandemonium. Yeah. I mean, people were freaking out. Hospitals were also flooded with tons of people believing that they were poisoned from cyanide. Falsely believing, but paranoia sets in, you know? So it was determined that in all eight of the, or all 50 of the pills that potassium cyanide was the chemical used to um, to kill all of these people. Mm-hmm. And potassium cyanide, you can look up the, the structure. It's a very, very simple structure. Just a carbon negatively charged with um, a triple bond attached to a nitrogen group. That's a cyano group. Yeah. And then a spectator ion potassium is also present there to neutralize it um, and keep it in solid form. But once that potassium cyanide goes down in your gullet and goes into your stomach, it actually mixes with the acid of your stomach, allowing for further penetration um, through the small intestine. And then it goes into into your own cells, starving them of oxygen, essentially killing you from asphyxiation. Yeah. Terrible, terrible stuff. That brutal. And potassium cyanide was used very frequently in history. Um, some of the major Nazi figures um, all committed suicide using potassium cyanide. We've all heard about those little potassium cyanide pills that secret agents would use to bite on and then kill themselves. Yeah. I think that was in a James Bond movie one time or something like that. It was in the Avengers, too, but you wouldn't know that. I would absolutely not know that. And uh, lastly, here's a, a pretty crucial clue as to finding the killer. Potassium cyanide would actually eat through those capsules in one day so it was so acidic that it actually burned through the capsules in one day meaning that the person 
would need to be in Chicago at least the day before the pills were purchased in order to plant them back. If it burns through the capsules, what does it leave behind? Does it does that negate its toxicity? I wouldn't say it negates its toxicity. Um, I would say more that it's it would probably be more noticeable that something was wrong with the pill and less likely for someone to take that pill. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but I don't think it would take away its toxicity. It just might be more noticeable, you know. Okay, so now that's the overview. Now I have four suspects to dive into. Oh my gosh. Okay. Are we ready? ready? So our first suspect isn't really a suspect at all. A lot of people believe that Johnson & Johnson was intentionally um, destroyed in the stock market and all of their shares intentionally as if this Tylenol murder situation was all caused by a white collar crime syndicate of sorts where who knows who would have done this, but um, they believe that, you know, a lot of the shares in Johnson and Johnson were sold right before the Tylenol murders. Their shares of course plummeted after this whole Tylenol recall. And then they built back up seeing another surge in the buying of shares of Johnson and Johnson, which leads some people to believe that it would be part of some sort of white collar crime uh, giant syndicate, which I mean, I, I don't need to consult a stock market expert. I am by no means a stock, a stock market expert, <laughs> but I, I feel like that's how the stock market works. You know, shares go down, buy shares when they're low, you know, buy low, sell yeah, that's high. my. That's my minimal understanding of stocks. So I don't believe that that would be the case personally, but that is the first theory. So now we're going to dive into some real people. Okay, that was just that was my crazy theory. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, one of the major suspects that Chicago PD and the FBI investigated uh, for these Tylenol murders. His name was Roger Arnold. Some uh, he apparently said some sort of potential incriminating things regarding the Tylenol murders at a bar shortly after the murders took place. Hmm. Arnold later said it was due to a uh, nervous breakdown due to the Tylenol murders. And apparently he was very agitated and very uh, shaky in his demeanor when he was giving this rant. And then incriminated himself somehow. And then incriminated himself. I don't have the quote of what he actually said or some of the quotes, but apparently it was pretty, you know, nervous breakdown like. And so the reason he is also personally incriminated and it's kind of tough to follow along here. But the store that Mary Reiner, one of the um, one of the people that died from the Tylenol murders, uh, she bought the pills in a store across the street from Roger Arnold's wife's psych ward that she was currently in. Oh, so maybe some connections. Chicago is a pretty big place, so I don't know. It's kind of tough. He also worked with the father of Mary Reiner at Jewel Convenience Store. Adam Janice, the first Janice that died, bought his pills from a Jewel Convenience Store. Another potential lead there. Another connection. Mm hmm. 
So when they investigated his house in December of 1982, they wound up finding a lot of potentially incriminating stuff, including chemistry equipment such as beakers and test tubes all throughout his home, as well as a bag of a mysterious white substance found near the equipment. This guy did it. I I mean, investigation closed. I, I figured it out. You think that, but I want to know your take on this. The bag was examined. The chemical was examined. It was turned. It turned out to be potassium carbonate in the bag. Okay. So I wouldn't think that that would be the best way to get your potassium for cyanide, or if there's even any way you can get potassium carbonate into potassium cyanide from some reaction. But I bet it's not impossible. Kind of interesting. I don't know. But I bet it's not impossible to do. Roger Arnold also then refused a lie detector test while he was, you know, in holding. Um, They eventually did not find enough evidence to convict Roger Arnold. But an interesting twist. Roger Arnold shot a man named John Stanisha in 1983 under the assumption that he was the one who turned him into the police. What the heck? He he wound up later dying and then Arnold was sentenced to 30 years for second degree murder, but was released on parole. He died in June of 2008. So we can't even ask him. No. I mean, is he going to tell you if you ask him just like, hey, real quick, I know it's been 40 (laughs) years, but did you do this? Did did you poison those Tylenol capsules? Jeez Louise. I that it's pretty it's pretty convincing. But as we go down this list, you might find some of the other suspects. The other two suspects may or may not be more incriminating. The evidence against them, I should say. All right, let's 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 hear it. All right. So this is suspect number three. The Unabomber, otherwise known as Theodore Kaczynski. Yeah. Do you know who the Unabomber is? Yeah, he's got a he's a, he actually has a uh, rate my professor account. Because he what? was a he was a professor. <laughs> Yeah, he was a mathematician. Yeah. Yeah. He's on Rate My Professor. Really? Yeah, he really is. That's interesting. Do you know what he did? Besides the Unabombing? Well, what is the Unabombing, if you would? Okay. Uh, Is this like a history quiz? All right. So I did not research this um, beforehand. He He was mailing bombs from the woods or something, right? Yeah, actually, that's a lot more than I was expecting to get. So that's really good. Yeah, he was. Did you just insult me? What? No, 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 no. It's going to lead into something later. What you just said. You'll find out in a second. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll humor you. Let's go. That was really good. But essentially, yeah, he is currently serving life in prison for sending bombs through the mail. He killed three people and injured 23 people. Jeez. Mm hmm. So. He lived in Illinois. I shouldn't say he lived, but his parents lived in Illinois at the time of the murders. He would frequently stay with his parents in Illinois. He had a cabin in Montana where he was his primary residence. Uh Um, But he lived in Chicago a lot. The first bomb of the Unabomber was found in Chicago. Hmm. And actually two months prior Uh, Jay Mitchell, a man who was poisoned via cyanide ingestion through a Tylenol capsule in Wyoming. This was two months prior, purchased them on a direct route to Theodore Kaczynski's cabin in Montana. It's like right on the primary route. And he also died of a cyanide poisoning 
from a Tylenol capsule. Why was he going to Ted Kaczynski's cabin? No, he wasn't. He just so happened to be living in Wyoming. He, and he bought it. Oh, I understand. OK, he, he was on yeah. the route. He wasn't traveling on the route. He just lived there. He just happened to live okay, on the route where the store is. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I thought he was just going to Ted Kaczynski's house for some reason. Yeah, he, <laughs> <laughs> he was just going up there, seeing the seeing the view. Ted just killed him. So you had something really you said something really interesting when you were describing, you know, Bomber. He had a real obsession with the woods and mm. wood in particular. And he would frequently write weird things relating to wood or the woods or the forest in the return addresses uh, for the bombs that he mailed. For whatever reason, that was apparently his weird thing that he wanted to do. That's cute. I don't know why. Both of the middle names of the founders of Johnson and Johnson are wood. Mm. Grasping at straws or potentially have something here. I don't know. That's weird. That's a weird coincidence. Is that real? That is real. Their middle yeah. name is Wood. They're both their middle name is Wood. I don't know why their middle name is Wood. I don't I didn't even realize Wood was a name other than a last name, but it is their middle name. All right. And here's the last piece of incriminating evidence against him. In February of 2009, DNA evidence was going to be used to try and convict convict the Unabomber of the Tylenol murders. But he denied the use of his DNA, voluntary use of his DNA, due to his fear. He was a very out there kind of guy. He was a very Charles Manson type where he was just spouting nonsense at this point in his life. And he he's a very big conspiracy theorist, Mm -hmm. but he denied the use of his DNA because he was fearful of them matching his DNA due to some like like partial matching. Like if he matched six percent of his DNA they would immediately convict him or something. Why would he be afraid of something like that? Well, because I mean, if you and I tested our DNA right now, we might have like a one to 5% chance that our DNA is, you know, kind of related or something like that. Mm-hmm. Our, our DNA might be 5% similar. So the conspiracy is, it makes sense. It holds its ground, but is there something else behind that? Or is he just using that as a cover up? To say, I don't want to use my DNA for this at all. Yeah, that's a cover up. It might be. But he is still serving life in prison for his whole Unabombing incident. Yeah. All right. Compared to Roger Arnold, who do you find more believable to this point? The Unabomber versus Roger Roger Arnold Arnold. versus white collar conspiracy crime. Yeah, that's still in rank them in order. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I still I've got a good, pretty good feeling about Roger Arnold. And then the the white collar crime is interesting. And then Ted Kaczynski, I think they were just trying to like, you know. I I don't know, like just pin it on him. I don't think he did it. Mm -hmm. That might have been what he was worried about. He's he's worried about them pinning these murders on him, giving him. But really, what does he have to worry about? He's serving life in prison. True. Are they going to give him capital punishment further? Because, I mean, he's already serving a sentence. Yeah. So I don't know. That's interesting. But a quick note on it that I didn't wind up including. I wasn't going to include, but it's an interesting point. Uh, During the time, he was trying to get a plea with the marshal, like the U.S. Marshal's office for uh, them to not auction off all of his belongings. 
So kind of, he was trying to get some leverage here. Um, and he said something weird, like, uh, in 1996, there might, there might have been some sort of DNA evidence that could potentially be damning to me in regards to the Tylenol murders. But he was essentially trying to prove with all of his belongings that he could have never even used potassium cyanide. It's, it's way out there, mm. but there could be a potential link there as well. Kind of interesting. Okay. Last, last suspect. This person is considered to be the primary suspect by the FBI and the Chicago police department. Okay. Okay. And he is actually still alive. Mm. His name is James Lewis. So here's some breaking news. If you didn't know this about this case, Johnson and Johnson immediately following, maybe not immediately, like a couple weeks after received a note, a, like a photocopy of a note mailed in and sent to the FBI and the Chicago police department. And I'm going to read word for word exactly what that note said. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little. There will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it only takes me 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, wire $1 million to bank account 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. So that's basically like if you find the person that wrote this note, they're basically saying I did it. Yeah. So. Fingerprinting was used because they found a fingerprint Here on the go. letter. The fingerprint belonged to Mr. James Lewis. Mm -hmm. But the bank account did not belong to James Lewis. It actually belonged to a man named Frederick Miller McKay. OK. Lewis explained that he used this bank account as some thing, like just something to do because he thought he was fooled by McKay out of five hundred and eleven dollars. Mm -hmm. So he thought he would pin him as as the Tylenol murderer because he got scammed of five hundred and eleven dollars. Interesting. Interesting, right? So a warrant for his arrest was issued and he was eventually stopped, spotted and arrested at a library on December 13th of 1982. So a lot of incriminating history uh, for James Lewis. He has a pretty, pretty solid criminal history. Uh, in 1966, he was committed to a mental hospital after t attempting suicide using 36 Anison pills. Anison, which is kind of interesting why he why Anison was it came up later. Anison came up later in 1986 because um, in what was later determined to be a copycat, Anison was used in the capsulated form to murder a University of Texas student, Kenneth Ferries, in 1986 using the exact same cyanide method, mm -hmm. using Anison capsules rather than Tylenol. Kind of interesting connection there. Yeah. 
Lewis tries to kill himself with Anison. Later on, Anison's used in the murder of a college student. Kind of interesting. While he was at that mental hospital, he was diagnosed as a catatonic schizophrenic. Mm. He was previously charged and acquitted of a second degree murder involving something else that uh, it wound up being unrelated and he got out, got free of it. Huh. He wound up having a business with his wife, who was just as whack job crazy, by the way. Oh, God. He had a business with his wife involving the importing of pill making devices from India into the United States and selling them at a more expensive rate. So he had the means. Had a pharmacy connection there. Yeah. And actually, when he was being chased down for another warrant uh, in a separate state, he fled to Chicago in 1981 under a false name. Hmm. Pretty extensive criminal history behind this guy. Yeah. Do we know what the false name he used was? I have no idea. Oh. It's probably out there. I just don't know it. Is it Wood Johnson? <laughs> it might be, yeah. Johnson Wood Johnson. Johnson Wood Johnson. <laughs> So they eventually they couldn't convict him for for the murders because he had an alibi uh, because in his home after they searched it, he had an Amtrak, an Amtrak ticket to New York that was set to leave 25 days prior to the murders. And as I mentioned earlier, he had to be if if he was the murderer, he would have to be in Chicago the day before. Yeah. Uh, they took place and there was never any evidence of another Amtrak or another plane ticket using James Lewis's name or the al- or the false name that he used, I should say. So there's no way he could have like went to New York and then flown back the day before, put the pills in the bottles, put them up and then left again. Mm-hmm. So that was his alibi. But surveillance from one of the cameras, only one of these uh, stores had a camera in them because 1982 surveillance cameras weren't nearly as common at the time. And the one camera showed a bearded man who resembled Lewis pretty, pretty close. But it was 1982 graphics and and pixelation, which is not very good. So nothing definitive came of the surveillance surveillance image. Uh So he got off scot free, but he I should say this. He got off scot free from the Tylenol murders, but he got sentenced to 20 years for the extortion of. Frederick Miller McKay. Jeez, 20 so years for that. He got yeah, 20 years. Which is pretty severe. That's not fair. All that all that over $511. So later on, he got he eventually got out. James Lewis published a fictional book in 2010 called Poison: The Doctor's Dilemma, where a fictional town experiences several deaths involving the lead poisoning of drinking water. Now, Lewis claims the book had nothing to do with the murders, but while he was on public access television promoting his new book, he wound up getting interviewed about the Tylenol murders and his his connection to him. And he got so furious because of it. After 48 minute after a 48 inter- minute interview, he stormed out of the public access television station. I mean, I'd get pretty ticked off, too. If I was well, trying I mean, to promote yeah. my book and people are bringing up this this old stuff. Isn't that a little bit incriminating, though, that he would write? I mean, you just don't publish a book called Poison, the Doctor's Dilemma (laughs) after being potentially linked to 
one of the most serious murders in the United States history. I guess we're just going to have to read that book. Yeah, let's get the book. Yeah, let's, we'll pass it back. We'll, we'll start a book club. <laughs> Poison Doctor's Dilemma by James Lewis. <laughs> so those are all four suspects. But I do want to mention that one positive to come from this horrible atrocity was the invention of tamper-proof lids and safety packaging requirements made by the FDA and actually in a team joint effort with Johnson & Johnson shortly thereafter. But this resulted in like one of the top 10 most expensive drug recalls in United States history. Which, by the way, here's a, po- here's a fun fact. Do you happen to know what the number one one is? It happened in 2005. Uh, oh, man. I'm going to be frustrated when you tell me this because I don't know it right now. 2005... Most expensive drug recall. $725 million. Oh, geez. Give me another hint. It was the drug was used as an it's an NSAID and it was used for stuff like rheumatoid arthritis as well as like um, arthritic pain and fever. I have no idea. It went under by the brand. uh, I don't even know this drug because I was it's actually 2004. Excuse me. Uh, It was withdrawn withdrawn from the U.S. market. Its brand name was Viox. I do know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generic name Rafacoxib. I think we talked, about this. we talked about this in MedChem. We should. Uh, this would be a good segment all by itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was used to treat juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, managing acute pain in adults, and as well to treat migraines and menstrual pain. So there's a fun fact of the day. Cool. And before we finish off and give our final final points on this, I want to include a quote from my uncle, who at the time he was right before um, becoming part of the police force in Chicago. And um, at the time he remembers it, it was it was pandemonium in Chicago and he wound up working for Lake Zurich Police Department, which is about 30 minutes away from Elk Grove, where these these poisonings started. And he said, I want to include his quote. He said, I do remember that time and that everyone was afraid to take OTC medications in general. It was kind of like it is now with COVID-19. People were extra, extra cautious about everything. There was a lot of shock about it. And everyone was watching the news to see if an arrest was made. Many in law enforcement, including someone I know, believes that James Lewis is the man responsible for the murders. Really? Mm hmm. I'll have to read more about this case because I'm fascinated by it now. It's really intri- it's really intriguing, right? Yeah. It's like it's crazy. I mean, I know that James Lewis had I wouldn't say that he necessarily had a motive, but he there is a lot of incriminating evidence stacked against him because he also he had easy access to pill making machines. And he in the letter bragged about it being easy for him taking 10 mm-hmm. minutes or so. And if he had like pill packing machines, of course, yeah, it'd be he easy wouldn't have to him. do it by hand. Yeah, because yeah. I imagine if you were to take all the capsules or from a like a full size bottle of Tylenol and individually take them all apart, it'd probably take longer than 10 minutes to get it get them packed nicely. I would say so. But let, let's hear your rankings at the end. Personally, for me, James Arnold, Rod, or, or not James, James Lewis, Roger Arnold. Then probably Unabomber and then Crime Syndicate. Yeah, that's my ranking of my thought suspects. But Man, what about you? I'm totally different. I think it was Roger Arnold. Then oh, you James still think Lewis. Roger Arnold's the number I still one? Think it's, I still think it's Roger Arnold. What makes you think that? Um, just he seemed like he had more more motive. 
He had the potassium carbonate in the chemistry equipment. Yeah, in his he house. had the chemistry equipment. He had an interest in in chemistry. Yeah. I think it was him. He and then wound James up shooting Lewis. a man six months later. Yeah, he's he's killed killed a dude later. Like, <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty incriminating stuff right there. Yeah, but then again, James Lewis he's got a criminal history too. Mm-hmm. But then it's the white collar crime, and then it's the Unabomber. Oh, you have white collar over Unabomber, really? I do. Yes, I do. Hmm. Just, I mean, like that's such a Pfizer thing to do to like just like. <laughs> Contaminate a bunch of specifically not Merck or anyone like it was specifically Pfizer. It was Pfizer. (laughs) Are we ready? Are we ready to incriminate Pfizer for the Tylenol murders? Let's let's investigate Pfizer next. Yeah, (laughs) maybe Bayer. Maybe Bayer. They they had aspirin. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, could potentially another another NSAID might be the cause. Yeah, Advil or ibuprofen or something like that. Yeah, who knows? Who makes Motrin? Who makes Motrin? Yeah. Does anyone still make Motrin? Yeah. Motrin makes Motrin. Really? I don't know the, the uh, like the, because um, Bayer makes uh, aspirin. You work in the pharmacy, so you might know a little bit more about it than I do. <laughs> but I've never, I've never actually come in contact with a bottle of brand name Motrin. We really, we have them. I mean, there's yeah, there's, I've there's always, definitely, definitely a thing. Well, I guess I always buy generic ibuprofen, so that maybe makes sense. But oh, they're Johnson I've never and seen Johnson them. too. Well, I, I'm going to go ahead and say Johnson and Johnson did not intentionally plummet Johnson and Johnson stocks. No way. I'm going to go ahead and go against that theory. So, looks like it was not ibuprofen. Then. Yeah, must be. Case confirmed. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that was that was excellent. That was really exciting. I, I, we should do a we should do a follow up. Based on if anybody, if anybody else has any interesting theories out there or, or additional questions or avenues you'd like us to to go down, let us know. Yeah. If you think Pfizer did it, if you work for Pfizer, we'd really love an interview. Because I think. Not in person. I'm terrified. <laughs> well, also, we're under quarantine. Yeah. So. Well, six feet social distancing and whatnot. But Yeah. Shane in the editing room here with a special announcement for our very first giveaway. Here's how it works. Head over to our Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages to vote in our poll for who you think is responsible for this vicious crime. Finally, tag two friends in the comments section of the post to become eligible for the prize. The winner of the giveaway will be announced in the next episode along with a pleasant shout out from us.